Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Animales humanos, animales humanos, animales, animales, animales humanos, animales humanos, animales, Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. The show is broadcast from 3CR Studios in Melbourne on 855am and we're streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are also available on 3CR. That's www.3cr.org.au and Freedom of Species podcast website. That's www.freedomofspecies.org. And all previous podcasts are available via iTunes. Hi, my name's Adam Cardellini, and if you've been listening um, for the last hour or so, you might have heard the great show, Out of the Pan, where Sally was covering all things pansexual issues. So thanks for that, Sally. This week on Freedom of Species, we're joined by Meg Good from Voiceless, the Animal Protection Society. Meg will give us a bit of an introduction to animals, uh, Australian animal law and tell us about the work that they're doing on animal law and animal t- protection. Meg joined Voiceless, um, the Voiceless team, in 2017 as the Voiceless Education Manager, which sounds like a very interesting role. Um, she holds a PhD in law, which is something that I think is a little bit unusual. Um, I, don't find, I don't meet many law uh, people with PhD, which is great. Love to hear about that and um, previously worked as a lecturer and researcher at the University of Tasmania. Meg also volunteers as the Director of Education at the Animal Law Institute, the Chief Educator of the Australian Animal Protection Law Journal, and the Tasmanian Tasmanian Coordinator of the Barristers Animal Welfare Panel. She has had a lifelong passion for animal protection and believes in the power of the law and education to help improve the welfare and protection of Australian animals. So it sounds like Meg's super, super busy and, <laughs> and got lots, wearing lots of different hats. Um, but thanks for, thanks for fitting us in um, this weekend, Meg. Uh, we really appreciate it. And I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about yourself and wh- why you become so interested and um, thrown yourself into animal law Mm -hmm. and was there some sort of experience that you've had in the past that sort of made you travel down this road? Yeah, well firstly thank you for having me on the show, I really appreciate it, Um, especially getting the opportunity to talk about this really new exciting um, voiceless education program. In terms of how I got into it, basically I started doing law because I wanted to become an environmental lawyer 
and I went through my degree always choosing environmental policy electives in government and environmental law electives in law and then I finished and they um, offered me the opportunity to do a PhD in environmental law and so my PhD focused on the human right to a healthy environment mm-hmm. um, so it was looking at that intersection between human rights law and environmental law so I've always been interested in this concept of rights and social justice and so I, I think animal law is quite a good fit with that and in terms of a moment in the fifth year um, of my law degree I went to a law students conference and at that conference Jed Goodfellow who's now Dr Jed Goodfellow who's at the RSPCA as their policy officer he did this whole session on this thing called animal law and I'd never heard of that before even as like an area of law it had it wasn't something that was offered at my university and I just literally never come across it and I was amazed that my lifelong love of animals could be married mm. with this love of law that I developed um, and I realized it was an area that really is compared to say where animal law is at in America or where environmental law is here, it's still fledgling and there's still so much room for growth and so much that needs to be done and people we need in the movement. Um, And so after that, I was really quite passionate about that and was in the back of my head and I started doing this environmental law PhD. And then I had this idea to hold um, an animal law conference in Tassie because we, but a national one. So we're getting all of the, you know, national experts and people talking about all these fascinating different areas and we didn't have anything like that in Tassie. And so actually my current employers, I applied for a grant with them because they um, had this amazing grants program where you can have an idea for how to further the animal law movement or whether more animal protection more generally. And I applied for them and they, they said yes, they sponsored the conference and we had all of these experts from overseas and from Australia come down to Tassie to talk about all these different areas, live export, um, wild animals and the law and so on and so forth, covered a huge amount. Um, and from there, I started working with the Barristers Animal Welfare Panel. Um, and that was really interesting work. That The Barristers Animal Welfare Panel was started by Victorian, Graham McEwen, um, and it's done some amazing work. And one of the main things, I suppose, BORP, as it's known, is um, known, <laughs> what an acronym, yeah. I know, is known for is saving dangerous dogs. So uh, a lot of people um, may know about this, is the idea that certain dogs get labelled mm. as yeah. dangerous dogs, Pit often after, or, oh, yeah. exactly, yeah. people, staffies, so yeah. forth, so after perhaps just biting um, someone in a particular context and, and then they get labelled dangerous dogs and then the council has the mm. ability to put them down. And so we will step in where there is a risk that dog will be killed um, and arrange essentially it can't be representation of course for the dog because dogs in our society are property of humans so we have to act on behalf of the humans to help protect the dog so we might arrange a solicitor and a barrister for that purpose so yeah got involved with the panel through that met the people that started the animal law institute um, and they asked me to come on board as the director of education because my background is obviously a lot of teaching in law yep um, yeah, and it's just really snowballed, got more and more and more involved to the point where I just finished my PhD. Um, and Congratulations. Got, <laughs> no, thank you. That's always a big bloody... Such um, a relief. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Now I have the ridiculous name of Dr. Good. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and so finished my PhD and then got this offer to go up to Sydney and live in Sydney and work at Voiceless in this brand new role. That's fantastic. Mm. And the role sounds like it's really needed. If you got to yeah. your fifth year yes. in um, your undergraduate, and that's your last year in law? That's right, yep. That, and that was the time that you found out about animal law and you have a huge passion for it. Like, or that's had right. a passion for animals. As a, yeah. You'll be able to now be that sort of, that inspiration, hopefully earlier on in people's law degrees and, and 
build that start help to build the movement in Australia. Absolutely. So one of the things we're trying to do is direct engagement. So go to universities like I'm doing while I'm in Melbourne here um, and talking about animal protection issues and with a particular, given my background, focus on the law and how the law, I think the biggest um, realisation I try to get across is the law is not just, just there to protect animals as we often think. It also actively facilitates and legitimises their exploitation and mm. harm. And people often don't think of it that way. Um, and as you say, I mean, who knows who's coming up through the ranks who um, may have a passion for animal law and could do some great stuff in this area. I mean, if you think about, you know, Stephen Wise in the US with the Non-Human yeah. Rights Project, he, had, he found out about animal law and look what he's done with it, you yeah. know. Um, so it's pretty exciting to think that it's becoming more mainstream. I think it's 14 law schools around the country offer an animal law unit now. Yeah. Um, you know, even just in, in Melbourne alone, I know of a number of law schools who offer animal law and have passionate animal law teachers who are really engaged with how, how do we teach this subject? Because it's so it's so broad, as we were discussing before. Yeah. It's yeah. such a huge area you're talking about. And it covers so many different areas of law as well. So from a legal student's perspective, it's actually a really interesting thing to study. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And so can you... Um, is there somewhere, if there's people interested who mm. are going, oh, animal law sounds fantastic, I'd love to get into that, yeah. where do they find out about w- what universities are teaching? We have a page on the Voiceless website okay, great. that lists all the universities, that lists all the contact people. So yep. um, I teach it at UTAS, so I'm the contact person for UTAS. Yep. There's contact people for all the different universities. Um, there's different offerings, so some might do it online, some might do it face-to-face, some might do it intensively, it might be full semester, so check out all the different options. Um, so that's on the Voiceless page page voiceless we also have an animal law toolkit which is something that when i was getting started was just an amazing resource and just shows you the breadth of this area and how interesting it is the animal law toolkit's a pdf you can just get free online and it, I've, yep. I've seen the animal law toolkit yeah. and it is really nice we were handing them out at the o week and yep. they just flew off the tables mm. people um, especially law students really yep. love those talk toolkits yeah fantastic That's fantastic good to hear and um what universities are you speaking at this week when you're yep. in Melbourne. Have you, you've already spoken at one or two, have you? Yeah, so I spoke at the University of Melbourne. Um, yep. They've In their JD program, they have a subject called legal research. And one of the things you can do through that is animals and the law. And it's run by Professor Christine Parker, who does some really interesting work with labelling. So how we label food. Uh, okay. And, yep. you know, like if we're calling it free range, what does that mean? You know, yep. et cetera, et cetera. Really good, important work. Um, and she asked me to come and speak about wild animals and the law. Mm-hmm. And I'm speaking on that topic at La Trobe tomorrow and then Deacon the next day. Great. Yeah. And um, and wild animals, is that because of your interest and background in environmental science or environmental law? And you yeah. sort of, that's where you've married all three. So you've got social justice, <laughs> you've got environmental law, and then you've sort of met in the middle with wild animal law. Yep, you're right onto it completely. Um, It also happened to suit perfectly in terms of voiceless. We focus on two main areas. So one is factory farmed animals and the other is um, the kangaroo industry in Australia Mm, because a lot of people aren't aware of the cruelty issues inherent within that and um, the fact that that, if you combine those two, that's the largest amount of animal suffering in Australia. So we focus on those two areas. So yeah, it fitted in perfectly to talk about wild animals and the law. On Monday or whenever it was that I spoke, I spoke about kangaroos, um, shark culling and wild duck hunting. All yeah. so important and all yeah. really topical right now. I mean, in the last, well, today there is um, the Victorian anti-duck shooting protests mm-hmm. and people risking their lives going onto ponds to stop shooters killing our um, native ducks and wild ducks. 
and recently we've had people fa- very famous surfers say that we should be culling sharks off um off the our beaches which is shocking and very unfortunate c- considering we know the science says that shark culls don't do anything to reduce the number of individuals getting attacked by sharks there's lots better um things to reduce those attack numbers yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, that's what I was looking at was um, what are the different ways th- th- we justify as humans killing native animals? Mm. And, you know, with kangaroos, we can justify it because they can be food, because we've labelled them as a pest and because um, we might say it's for environmental management reasons. Yeah. <laughs> um, and for ducks, I mean, really, the justification there is entertainment and sport. And we have to ask is that really a sufficient justification when we know that I mean, the problem is we actually don't know the wounding rate, but it's estimated to be somewhere around one wounded bird per actually successfully shot bird. Oh, okay. That's higher than I'd heard. Yeah, that's that's Well, the, that's a whole problem though, is yeah. that we actually don't have proper statistics. I mean, yeah. that's based on um, something from the Northern Hemisphere, you mm. know. Um, and of course, you anecdotally hear a lot from the duck protesters, which yeah. you, you and I probably both know people that have been involved in that. and. Yeah. And, and what they say, it's awful, the amount of wounded birds that they um, go and rescue and often aren't able to help. Um, and, of course, what I find phenomenal about it is that you have this significant risk of injuring protected species. Yeah. And something that the law actually does is create this hierarchy of protection and they're up the top. And if we can't protect them, mm. <laughs> who can we protect? Absolutely. It's, it's quite, yeah, it's strange. Like you've got to be able to tell the difference between two species of duck that look very, very similar from 150 metres away. And it's a one-off waterfowl identification test. So something that RSPCA were pushing for was to have it so that it would be annually every time you get your licence renewed rather than that you just do it once and then you somehow understand forever (laughs) that you can't kill that kind of duck and you can kill that kind of duck. Exactly. And and there are always instances where um, threatened ducks are, there's lots of them found dead. Um, in the same killing seasons as mm. other ducks, but it doesn't matter. They're all ducks, and they all shouldn't be killed, which is um, which is the point, I think. Exactly. So why why is is it so problematic to be killing these kinds of ducks and not these other kinds of ducks? It's all down to and something that I always try and emphasise to students is that the entire way this law the legal regime is set up to protect animals reflects a hundred percent human interest, priorities, and values. Yeah. And we have to just be really open about that because that's why it's so ethically inconsistent, the way that we treat them. Yeah. And I, so I've got some experience in um, environmental science and I actually did um, my, my thesis on a non-native species. And I, I did justify the killing of those non-native species for, uh, quote, environmental management mm-hmm. reasons and research reasons. And it's really interesting that we get this um, this these environmental or conservationists, and that's what I felt I was, Mm. um, doing things, going out there and killing individuals for some excuse um, that often isn't very backed up by um, scientific evidence. It's sort of like, oh, they're a pest, so we better get rid of them. And And I think this is a great point that you've raised about the individual versus species. And with wild animals, we so often tend to think of them as a species and and not as individuals. And the interesting thing is with human beings, we don't seem to lose our value as individuals the more of us that there are. No, absolutely But that seems to occur for wild animals. And, you know, is is that acceptable for that to be occurring? And and as you say, the science behind deeming, for example, the kangaroo as a pest Mm. is debatable. Yeah. And... 
And with lots of these kinds of um, creatures, why why is it that we always go to lethal methods of killing, especially when we've seen that often lethal me- methods of killing are counterproductive, that you cull and then the, the population stabilise, say with stray cats, it's better to engage in fertility control because then the population's actually stabilised and you don't have to do the culling again. Yeah. And the another, sorry, this is so interesting, obviously, we're, yeah. both, we're both interested in this environmental sort of aspect of um, wild animals and law and killing. Um, another aspect that sort of goes on in kangaroos, but there was also a call um, late last year by a professor at Deakin University for culling brumbies, like 90% yes. of the brumby population in the Snowy Mountains, because they were they were eating each other when they get hungry. And it's like, the the call was sort of asking people to um, to kill individuals so that they could save them from being starved or something. It's like this really strange sort of juxtaposition. We need to come in and control the lives of wild individuals um, and put them out of their misery before that misery even occurs. So I think the argument was like, oh this is a made up number, but 30% mm. are going to die from starvation. So yep. we should just kill them all. Yes. It's very odd I mean, there's logic. been a push obviously to kill wild horses for environmental yeah, reasons other environmental for a while. Reasons. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, and again, that it's interesting how we often put these animals in that situation. We introduce yep. animals into these different ecological environments and then they cause problems and then they're the ones that receive Suffer. yeah, the suffering Absolutely. as a result. Mm. Oh, that's so interesting. I bet you we could talk about yeah, that all Forever. <laughs> Um, but we'll, we'll keep on, we'll move on. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about what Voiceless does and, yeah. and what the organisation is all about? Yeah, so Voiceless is quite unique in terms of the animal welfare and rights and protection organisations within Australia. It was started back in 2004. Um, it's a non-profit think tank based up in Sydney and we're actually a really quite small team, which not everyone realises. Um, small team, but we do a lot. Mm. So. I always see you guys around. Like there's yeah. always something from Voices. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, very busy. Yeah, it's inspirational working there and, and seeing everything that gets produced every week. Um, so one, something that we're working on at the moment is um, our egg campaign, um, encouraging people to go egg-free or cage-free in the lead-up to the Poultry Code review. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've also working on the Voiceless Animal Law Lecture Series that we do every year. And, and prior to joining Voiceless, I used to speak in the Voiceless Animal Law Lecture Series. And it was a really good way for me as a... Um, younger sort of starting out animal law advocate to to learn the ropes and, and to think about these issues deeply and to be exposed by such to such interesting concepts. You know, we've had yeah. Stephen Wise obviously came and I spoke with him yeah. about the Non-Human Rights Project and we looked at the possibilities for that in Australia and he talked about the litigation he's run. And last year we obviously had the um, Party for the Animals leader who's very inspirational and talked about the significant impacts it has made in the European Parliament having... Um, an animal party, you know, a yeah, party okay. entirely dedicated to animals, which obviously we have in New South Wales as well. Yeah. Um, so, but for voiceless, those people wouldn't be coming here having those um, public conversations that anyone can join and engage with. So I think that's a really important thing that they do. And voiceless is particularly focused on animal law. Um, that's really one of our niches. Um, and also, as I said before, the fact that we really focus on factory farming and looking at how those animals are treated and so many of those animals in Australia, and they're not always the animals that people connect with in the same way that they might connect with a rare or endangered species, for example, yeah. and give money to that. Um, and then, of course, kangaroos, which are often demonised as being pests. Yep. So, yeah, that's what Voiceless does. I mean, we also have the grants program. We recently had the Voiceless Awards, so... 
we give out grants of money. Um, one of them was to the Animal Law Institute, for example, Australia yep. for Dolphins. So supporting other organisations that are doing really important work, strategic litigation, for example, yep. um, and also media prizes. So if if a journalist runs uh, a really influential or important article in animal protection, we acknowledge that That's in great. our media yeah. prizes. Yeah. yeah. And I've been along to the... I went to the Stephen Weiss um, yeah, talk. fantastic. Um, through the Voiceless Law Lectures in Melbourne, and it was a great event. So I definitely keep a lookout for those um, coming up, and, um, yeah, they're fantastic to go along to. But I think now we'll go to a quick song, and this one is The Worst Crimes Are Legal by Ash Grumwald, um, and from the album Now. Subscribe to your award-winning independent community radio, bringing you coverage of community issues and events. This is Peter Base Camp. Welcome to the Little Red Tulangi Treehouse. As you said, I'm down at the East West Tunnel picket, as it usually does, starts at 5.30am. The Lincoln Melbourne Authority have come here in the middle of the night and set up another drill rig here on Gold Street. The police were pretty keen to defend that with all their resources this morning. I think for Australians... In order to know ourselves, really fully know ourselves, in order to mature, we need to understand Aboriginal culture. We need to embrace it and realise that in coming here, you're now part of the longest continuing culture in the world. We need your support. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377 now. So that song was The Worst Crimes Are Legal by Ash Grunwald. Um, from the album Now, and I think it was pretty fitting. The worst crimes are legal. Um, and you're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR. Um, so we've been talking to Dr Meg Good <laughs> from Voiceless, the um, Animal Law Institute, and we've been talking about animal law and animal tr- protection and what Voiceless are doing in that space. So Australians use a lot of animals um, in different ways from growing them so that we can eat them uh, to experimental research, entertainment and keeping individuals as pets. Can you give us a bit of an overview of what animal laws already exist in Australia um, that's meant to protect animals? <laughs> And is there a distinction between state and federal law? Yeah, absolutely. So what a lot of people probably don't realise is we don't have a national animal welfare law. So we don't have any National Animal Welfare Act. So all of the animal welfare acts are state and territory based. So they're all, they, they differ, which is problematic when you yeah. think that we're dealing with the same animals with the same capacity to feel pain and suffering. And it, I imagine it makes it much difficult to persecute a case that to, to make change across the whole country, which well, you'd hope exactly. to do. Wouldn't you would pro- probably prefer to have some national consistency with that. I mean, for the large part, they are very similar. There are differences perhaps in how they define what an animal is, how they express what cruel? Yeah, no, seriously. How do they define an animal? Yeah, like do you exclude fish from it, for example, like in Western Australia? Where so in so Western Australia, fish are not. They're excluded from the, the definition of animal under the animal cruelty legislation, so oh, it doesn't apply. Wow. Yeah, that's that. That sort of reminds me. In science, there's like crustaceans and mm. um, and insects are excluded from ethics applications. You don't have to actually go through ethics to get to be able to go and use those individuals. So, yeah, it's, it's very strange and unfortunate. Exactly. Exemptions from animal cruelty legislation um, are quite significant because we have 
I mean, I know that we're going to discuss this a little bit later, the codes of practice and how yep. that creates a bit of a double standard for farm animals. But getting back to what I was saying, so we've got these um, state and territory level animal cruelty legislation. What's also relevant if we talk about wild animals is nature conservation legislation. So that can also be relevant. And this sort of gets to the fact that for animal law, we have to think more broadly than just cruelty legislation. We have to think about all of the legislation that might impact on the human animal relationship. So even consumer law is starting to be relevant to animal law because for a lot of people the way that they relate to an animal is as a consumer a consumer mm. of their their flesh or their services and yep. so forth um so uh as to whether or not there is a distinction between state and federal laws, we do have what we'll discuss soon, which is the national codes of practice, which try to create a degree of national consistency in how we treat certain types of animals. But there definitely is differentiation. I mean, you can do things to animals in some states that you can't do to animals in others. You know, if you say one state bans duck shooting and another one doesn't. And from an ethically consistent perspective, what that, that really reflects the fact that the law is not underpinned by any recognition of animal rights. Yeah. Because if it was then you would have to have that ethical consistency. Yep. It's mm. like, yeah, humans, no matter who they are or where they are, they deserve the same rights. You know, if, yes. you're, a, if you're out in the streets or you're a young person, you're an older person, you're a prisoner everyone gets the same rights. You don't You don't. Change. Well, it's an interesting one that because in something that my PhD looked at was the fact that we don't have a National Human Rights Act. Um, <laughs> so even though the government signed on to these international treaties, like yep. the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights or the International Covenant on Economic, Social, Cultural Rights, um, in Victoria and in the ACT, there is state and territory-based um, human rights legislation, but you don't have that in the other states and territories. Are they, are they good human rights re- legislation? Or are they... uh, they're a starting point. <laughs> so they're based on this thing called the dialogue model. So it's basically trying to make a compromise with parliamentary um, supremacy, uh, parliamentary sovereignty. So allowing the parliament really at the end of the day to still have the final say on laws and what our position is. So even if the court says or, the, or a parliamentary scrutiny committee says this is actually human rights inconsistent, if the parliament wants to, they can maintain that legislation. And so, yeah, as, as to whether or not you think that's an adequate human rights protection yeah, is a matter seems, of debate, but it mm. seems to be pragmatically the way that we can get human rights protection at the moment. And we haven't been able to get that at the national level. I mean, in 2009, they, they polled Australians and said, do you want a human rights act? And overwhelmingly, the response was yes. Um, but do we have one? No. The mm. most we got at the federal level was the introduction of a parliamentary um, scrutiny committee, essentially, that looks at the consistency of legislation with human rights. Um, but and although that is making an impact and making a human rights discussion and discourse and making people more aware of them, in terms of teeth and what it can yeah, do, okay. it's limited. Yep. Yeah, and then animal rights is just a totally other topic. So that's why you've. It seems like, but a, it shouldn't be though. No, I it mean, be, we're yeah. we're we're animals. Yeah, absolutely. And they're just non-human animals. I I view it as part of the same enterprise. Yeah. And and not in conflict as a lot of people do. I mean, people always say to me, why focus on this when there's so many humans suffering? And I say to them, well, if you think about it, animals are voiceless, obviously. Yep. So if anyone needs rights protections, it's animals. Yeah. And, you know, most people can walk and chew vegan gum at the same time. So mm. why can't we care about two issues at the same time? Well, that's exactly true. <laughs> and also we have the capacity as humans to advocate for our human rights in parliamentary systems and yeah. through being citizens. They have no capacity to be part of the lawmaking process that then inf- impacts on them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so that's a really quick overview of the animal law regime in Australia. Um, you have a specific question, I think. Yeah. So um, in particular, you were 
earlier actually mm. you mentioned it that there's so there's certain dogs that if they bite someone yep. then they the law can actually um, becomes a tool to punish them or you know kill them or whatever yes. yep. and I had a, I had a question about um, quote pest species I don't actually like that term I I, mm. I think non native species is a more accurate mm. term but just because an individual is an, is non-native, they then have certain laws that um, exclude them from from certain. Or like um, the kangaroo, they are native. Yeah, that's they're, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they've been deemed a pest. Yeah. So how does law how does law actually um, work to exclude animals mm-hmm. from from being um, protected? Yeah, exactly. So if we take the kangaroo as an example, um, at the state level, say New South Wales, yep. the kangaroo is protected fauna. And so you can't just go and kill a kangaroo. That's illegal to mm. engage in that kind of hunting. You have to have a license to do so, which means the state is saying, if you've got a license, it's okay to kill this animal. And then they create conditions for that. And there's a code on how you can shoot um, kangaroos. And it sets a not not even a best standard, but just a minimum standard of humane conduct yeah. in how you kill kangaroos. Um, and if you think about it, if but for that legislation creating that exemption essentially – and but for that code of practice saying this is the standard that is okay, it wouldn't be legitimised, it wouldn't be justified, it wouldn't be legal. So in that way, the law is actively facilitating harm to that animal or those animals. And what a lot of people don't realise is that this is the largest commercial land-based slaughter of mammals on the earth. Yeah, we and I, I've, I've heard people sort of... Um, say things like, oh, seal, seal mm. um, hunting in, in yep. Canada is horrible and we kill more kangaroos than they kill seals. We should be doing neither of those things, but it's, it's a strange argument to, um, for Australians to sort of be against the slaughter of other native species if they're not against the slaughter of, of kangaroo species. Yeah, and I think that partly, I, I mean, we have so many foibles as humans and I think one thing is that, and I'm absolutely appalled by the seal hunt mm. myself, um, but also by the killing of kangaroos. And yep. I, I think that seals, if you look at them aesthetically and, and yeah. what they maybe <laughs> yeah. play to in terms of human emotion, I, that's, that's really significant in animal protection, unfortunately. Yep. I mean, you've probably heard, I'm sure, the term charismatic megafauna yep. and how we're more likely um, to protect those kinds of animals. One thing that I like to show students when I start talking about wild animals is um, remember that giraffe that was killed and dissected and fed to a lion at that yeah. zoo? Yep. And how there was quite an uproar over it. Yet we know every day that zoos feed other animals meat, which is other animals, to keep those animals alive. And they make decisions about which animal life is more worthwhile to do that. But the thing was, a giraffe is beautiful and majestic and something that we don't conceive of as meat. And that's not the kind of animal that we think of as meat. And, you know, the other day I went out to Edgar's Mission, which is so amazing and magical. it's fantastic. (laughs) And I was hanging out with these piglets and they were just like dogs. They were chewing my feet. They were making, they wanted rubs. They were making noises. They, I could, they were indistinguishable from dogs um, and clearly super intelligent. And, and it just stuns me that those are animals that the law says um, that you, you know, you can do things to those animals that you would be prosecuted for if you did it to a dog. But because it's a pig, just because it's a different species, it's acceptable. Yeah, under the law. Yeah, it's it's a strange, a very strange setup. It just doesn't make sense from a biological standpoint. Mm. There's no there's no um, moral distinction based on biology. Mm. Um, when we talk about humans, there's no distinction based on biology how we would treat another individual. Just because someone's male or female does not make that that um, 
male more morally worthwhile than a female. Mm. Um, and that's sort of how we treat animals. And then we have this gradient of animals. And you're, you're right, there's, there's um, plenty of evidence that shows that people care more about the cute animals mm-hmm. and those animals that um, non-human animals that look or are close, more closely related to us, like mammals. And then as you get further away um, in evolutionary history, like when we last had ancestors, then people care less and less about mm. those individuals. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. And it shouldn't be about what humans care about the most. But what mm. we see, um, so it's really interesting, there's an argument obviously within animal rights theory that the property status of animals is at the heart of the animal protection problem, you know, that we need to fix that in some way, either through rights or just removing that property status and so forth. Um, however, if you look at it, if you look at the domestic dog, often that's the best protected kind of animal. Not always, but mm. often when you give people an interest in the protection of an animal, they are much more willing to protect it. That's the unfortunate truth. Yep. And so that's why there's been a suggestion, I can't recall from who, um, that we should actually lease wild animals onto people's land and that when people have an interest in protecting them, that they would be much more likely to actually protect their habitat and, and protect them from predators and so forth. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, especially because, you know, from a pure animal rights perspective, you think there's it's fundamentally incorrect to say that an animal is, is human property because yeah. they're a rights-bearing entity onto themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Okay, so what what is in your in your experience? Mm-hmm. What current um, Australian animal laws ability? What is the ability um, for Australian animal law to protect non-human individuals? Do you think it's working? I think it's failing in lots of ways, um, and I think that you, you know I was reading this quote by I think it was Lynn White the other day about the duck shooting and how they had to um, go to the Supreme Court. Um, Animals Australia and another organisation to try and get a particular protected duck protected adequately and then the government did protect the wetland in the end. She said, you know, why has it taken two animal welfare organisations to go to the Supreme Court to get a protected duck protected? And I think that really hits at the heart of what is a lot of the problem with current Australian animal law and it's that a lot of the monitoring compliance and enforcement work and a lot of the um, awareness raising, a lot of the public discussion and so forth is occurring because of non-profit organizations um you know animals australia is obviously huge in this area um and that's problematic and if we look at live export how much would we know about that if it wasn't for the animals australia investigations um and if we look at you know everything that's happened with greyhound racing if it wasn't for animal liberations investigations and then there's been that push to further criminalize those kinds of activities those activist activities um so the fact that we're having to rely on those activities to actually know what's going on in the industries that lots of people contribute to i mean why is it so hard to get access to a factory farm if that's where people's food is coming from, why is that not um, much more open than it currently is? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think with in terms of its capacity to protect non-human individuals, certainly every day it does do that. We do see cruelty prosecutions and so forth, but it has such a greater potential than is being realised. Yeah, okay. Mm. Yeah. Okay, with that, we'll go to a, um, a song and we'll see you on the other side. So this one is a tune from Anne Feeney. And it's called Have You Been to Jail for Justice? Um, and the album of the same name. Chavez, maybe it was Dorothy Day. Some will say Dr. King or Gandhi set them on their way. No matter who your mentors are, it's pretty plain to see. If you've been to jail for justice, you're in. 
Uh, hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paula. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great. And really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Okay, you're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR, and we're talking to Dr. Meg Good about animal law and protection in Australia. And um, that, that song that you just heard was by Anne Feeney, Have You Been to Jail for Justice? A nice one to go through. Um, okay, so we regularly see ex- exposés of animal industry, um, of the animal industry within Australia from groups like Aussie Farms, um, Animals Australia, PETA and others. Uh, which often include these videos that show cruelty on farm on farms um, and the experiences of individuals on those farms, and there's usually followed by an outcry from the public saying, "What this is just nuts? Why is this happening? These poor individuals." Um, but then the like a farmers' federation or something will come out and they'll go, "Oh no, that's just bad bad apple. Um, that doesn't happen everywhere," and uh, we follow strict codes of practice to ensure that we treat non-human animals on our farms um, in the right way. Can you tell us a little bit more about what codes of practice Mm. actually are? Yeah, so codes of practice are at the national level um, and the way in which they're incorporated from a legal perspective into the state and territory legislation differs um, and it's important to note that you can actually use in certain jurisdictions a code of practice as a defence to a charge of cruelty. So something that's what I was getting at before with the pig and dog example, that if you can say we've complied with the code for this, then even though this particular act might constitute cruelty under the technical definition of cruelty under that legislation, and so I couldn't do it to a dog, because mm. there's a code of practice on how we treat pigs specifically, because pigs for, are part of a huge food industry, yep. then that's okay. Um, and as you've, you've sort of asked is who writes them, how, how do these codes get yeah, created, yeah. Um, these codes are industry standards. So these codes reflect how the industry does this. And whilst obviously government has input into what that standard should be, this is reflecting industry practice. So, so if industry practice was cruel, uh, but it was common, and it was just the common practice that industry Mm. does, then would that be in the code of practice? Yes. So this is what we refer to as institutionalised cruelty. And it's the kind of cruelty it's hard to educate the public on because whilst the public are quite alert to individual acts of cruelty that constitute cruelty that can be prosecuted by the RSPCA and it looks sadistic and horrible and awful, institutionalised cruelty is much harder to educate on because it's legal. It's legalised. Yeah. And it's happening every day and it's happening at a huge scale. So I'm sure there'll be a point in time when we look back at battery cages and we say, how on earth was that a legalised harm? You know, how? of course it's institutionalised cruelty. Yeah. Um, but we're not at that point in history yet. And we're, we're at a point in history where higher welfare for farm animals is consumer choice. And it's not a government duty, it's consumer choice. There's a, there's a minimum standard of welfare that we ensure through codes of practice. But 
that higher welfare is something that you as a consumer can say, oh, yeah, I'll pay another dollar to get that kind of egg where the, the, the chicken had better welfare or with free-range meat and so forth. And what's concerning about that is often that consumer signal that you intend to send back isn't the consumer signal that you, that you want because um, there is a disjunct between what the public thinks as free-range and what is actually free-range in practice, um, but also the fact that Public's awareness of animal welfare issues is often quite limited. So people have become aware of stocking density, for example. It's something they can conceptualise easily. Uh, it doesn't and, look and right. stocking density is the number of animals within yeah, a square, square metre or something. Yep. Exactly, yeah. So how, how, how jam-packed, basically, is it in there? And we can kind of imagine as humans how awful that would feel. Mm. And so people will often say free range. Have they got the ability to freely range to experience sunlight and so forth? But what we're aware of is that there are so many more welfare issues associated with this kind of intensive system. System, um, that the public might not be aware of. I mean, really, on a, on a packet of eggs, you need something that tells you about do they engage um, in the maceration of male chicks, for example, yeah. something a lot of people aren't aware of, um, de-beaking and so on and so forth. So yeah. there are other welfare issues that a simple term like free range can't really encapsulate. And then any, any of those welfare issues also um, don't engage with the conversation around oppressing and then killing an individual mm. for use. And mm. they, they necessarily exclude that conversation around the animal's um, intrinsic rights to life and to continue living. Oh, yes. The base assumption yeah. is we as humans get to kill these yeah. animals or consume their products, yeah. but just how do we do that? What's the best way yeah. to do that? What, what degree of quality of life can they have until we do that and how long can we let them live? I mean, if you look at the average lifespan of a meat chicken – it's insanely short compared yeah. to what their natural lifespan is. You know, we're it's talking... Like 45 days, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, compared to a natural lifespan of, say, seven years. Yeah. And, I mean, why do we as humans get to decide that? I mean, they can't really survive much longer than that because of the way that they're bred, the high growth rate that they're experiencing. Yeah, and I think it's, it's interesting that you sort of... Um, at the moment, there seems to be just two... There's a, a fallacious argument that it's either we have um, really bad welfare or we improve welfare and then consumers never actually often, well, mostly don't get the third option, which is we end the use of animals. Mm. <laughs> um, but, yeah, law is sort of working in that in that welfare space in Australia at the moment, I suppose, because it's it's harder to go for that. We need to end the use of animals. So that that's more viewed as something that wouldn't go through the law, but something that would be um, movement-based yeah, driven. and movement-driven. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, cool. Mm. Um, in the past, you've spoken about the concept of regulatory capture. Can you just describe what this is? It's an interesting concept. and I think people would be interested in learn, learn what it's about. Yeah, so this is a regulatory theory concept and it could be applied, you know, in the environmental protection context and, and certainly has been applied in the animal protection context. So it's this idea that the departments, the, the government departments regulating the industries start to act in the interest of those industries, that there is an adequate separation between um, the interest of industries and, and the government regulations. So um, while sometimes you can have, you know, a handy uh, correlation between the two. So, for example, it's good for industry to have good welfare of animals because then the animals are healthy, you get less um, death rates and um, it, the you know, perhaps the meat might taste better as a result and so on and so forth. But there there are sometimes inconsistencies between the two. There are sometimes where pursuing the profitability of agribusiness and pursuing animal welfare objectives aren't always going to meet perfectly. And that's where 
this concept of regulatory capture becomes problematic. And what we've been pushing for, Voiceless, is the introduction of an independent office of animal welfare, both at the national level and at the state and territory levels, to address the fact that really you need to pull away um, animal welfare regulation from a government department that is designed to pursue profitability for agribusiness. Yeah, it makes sense. If mm. if if welfare is the conversation that's being had, then it makes sense. And then we can all, yes. like, because that's what governments are going to engage with at the moment, but then we as activists can all talk about ending the use of animals. <laughs> that's right. So th- I, that's what I was um, sort of hinting at before is that it's really useful in animal protection to have people coming at this from all different angles. You know, we, we are at a point in history where it is accepted that animals are property and that they can be used for food and so on and so forth. So whilst that legal framework exists, it's important to, um, you know, make these changes to ensure that the institutional structure is better. So having an independent office would be better. Um, and um, But unfortunately, it's not looking like it's going to happen anytime soon, uh, given that the legislation didn't pass in Parliament. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the animal welfare reforms that, that we seek whenever um, the government seeks to change the way that we regulate these things, like what's happening soon with the public consultation um, on the poultry code. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think I think we're almost out of time. I'm going to go through some community announcements yep. now, and then um, do you have anything else that you wanted to mention about um, Voiceless or what you're going to be doing? Uh, what if What if there's a student out there that's really interested in mm. this area, and um, can they get in touch with you about about setting things up or getting you guys to come and talk at their university? Yeah, absolutely. So if anyone is interested, if there are teachers listening, I'm particularly interested in hearing from them um, or someone from a university that would like Voices to come and speak to the students, um, we can speak to a range of issues and a range of styles, for example. If it was into an academic unit, that would be fine. Or if it was a more public lecture, that's fine. Um, also, if, if you're a student and you want to get involved in this area, then just contact, um, if you go onto the Voices website, there's a contact um, page there and you can look all the details and choose how you want to get in touch with us. And that's voiceless.org.au. Great. So head to the Voiceless um, website to get information about how to contact them and set up a fantastic um, talk from the Voiceless team. And so we've got a couple of community announcements before we head off. So the dates for the 2017 Oceania uh, Conference for Critical Animal Studies have been announced and it's going to be in Australia this year, which is fan- – uh, in Australia, of course, it's going to be in Australia. It's going to be in Melbourne this year, which is fantastic. Um, won't have to travel too far for the Melbourne people. Um, it's going to be held on the 15th and 16th of July and there's currently a call for presentations. The topics include um, forging alliances with other social movements. And I think this ties into what we've been Mm. saying, like bridging that gap between environmental, social and animal rights Mm. and justice is such an important thing that we need to be doing. Um, So that's going to be one of the major topics. Uh, Also, intersectionality, gender, class, sex and um, critical animal studies, anarchism and critical animal studies, non-human animals and the law, um, and the criminalisation and dissent and link links with other movements. And finally, critical animal pedagogy. So lots of interesting things um, are going to be discussed. So if you've got any experience or you'd like to talk on any of those points at ICAS, um, Oceania, uh, send your... Um, Look, look for more information at the www.criticalanimalstudies.org forward slash Oceania um, hyphen conference forward slash. So check that one out. I hope to see you there. I'll definitely be going along. 
there's also a campaign on Kangaroo Island uh, to bring the speed limit down from 100 kilometres an hour to 80 kilometres an hour. Um, this is an effort to bring down the high, high amount of roadkill that happens on Kangaroo Island. And it, so bringing the speed down means that um, animals on the road, individuals, might have a bit more time to get away and um, people might have a bit more time to slow down rather than hitting the poor, poor individuals. And the number of roadkill that they're getting on Kangaroo Island is really um, sort of keeping the wildlife carers out there flat out. So they've got lots of work on their hands, which is unfortunate. So there's an online petition um, that will only take you a couple of minutes to sign. If you can jump online and sign that petition to try and bring down that speed limit, um, that would be fantastic. And the, the petition can be found at www.kiwildlifetrauma.com. So that's www.ki, for King Island, wildlifetrauma.com. Oh, Kangaroo Island, sorry. And finally, one last announcement. The Animal Activists Forum um, details have been released for 2017. And another great announcement for Melbourne. It's going to be here. Um, so there's lots happening in Melbourne this year for um, animal conferences. So it's going to be held on the 14th and 15th of October at Melbourne Town Hall. And they've just put out a call for speakers. So if you've got some knowledge and skills that you'd like to share with others around um, animal activism, then put in a... Put in a um, or check out the details and put in an abstract um, to the Animal Activist Forum. And you can find the details at www.activistsforum.com. And again, keep your eye out for any of the Voiceless Law Lecture series um, happening in May. They happen all around the country. And you can look for upcoming events um, by Voiceless and grant applications if anyone's interested in putting in for the Voiceless grant. Um, on their news and events on their Facebook page. So you can check out that at Voiceless. Just type in Google somewhere, um, Voiceless Facebook. Yeah, okay. So that's it for us today. Um, thank you very much, Meg, for joining in. Thank I think you it was so a, much. It was a fascinating conversation and lots to learn and lots to do in the animal law area. I think there's plenty to do and hopefully with your work and efforts in um, education, that we'll be able to spread that message and get many more enthusiastic mm. and, and intelligent young uh, lawyers onto the case. Uh, um, you've been listening to Freedom of Species. Uh, our contact details are at info at org, or you can get in touch via the Facebook page or on Twitter. And up next, you're going to be listening to Nick and the team from Encyclodelia to help you rethink the psychoactive paradigm. Um, it's a really interesting. I, I enjoy listening to it on my way home <laughs> from the station. So certainly stay tuned and listen to what Nick and the team have to say this week. So the next song that we're going to be playing as we go out is by Billy Bragg, and it's Never Cross a Picket Line um, from the International uh, CD. Have a great week, guys. All the best. Sack for refusing to ever cross a picket line. Voices down the ages warning, never cross a picket line. You must never cross a picket line. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.